to the Europe and the World podcast. This episode is part one of a two-part series about defense and security in the European Union. We are your hosts. I'm Lucia, a junior at Boston University studying international relations. I'm Konstantinos, a senior at Boston University also studying international relations. And I'm Kiani, also a senior at Boston University studying international relations. Today we have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Liana Fix, a historian and political scientist. A fellow for Europe at the Council on Foreign Relations, her areas of expertise include the European Union, Germany, Europe and Eurasia, NATO, Russia, non-proliferation, arms control and disarmament, and Ukraine. Dr. Fix, welcome to the podcast. We're just going to give you a brief overview of what we're currently focusing on. So we are occupying ourselves with identifying the benefits and fallacies of EU security and defense policy in order Mm -hmm. to determine what the EU has done and can do better with regard to common security and defense. And so Mm -hmm. we essentially trust this theme is important towards realizing a stable European political and defense landscape due to the ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine, which has initiated a debate on what the future of security and defense within the EU holds. So thus, we are very motivated to learn more about the various viewpoints that compel EU defense policy. Additionally, with the plethora of sentiments you have on the current EU defense policy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to start off with, uh, we're just going to start with a couple general questions. Since the Russian annexation of Crimea in 2014, what has the European Union done in the realm of common defense? Yeah, so the European Union has in the past been known for being more an economic actor rather than a geopolitical or security actor, but that has um, at least a little bit changed since the outbreak of the war. So what we have seen is that the European Union has provided funds to Ukraine um, to buy military equipment for the war, um, and it also reimburses EU member states for military support that they give to Ukraine. Um, what we've also seen is that the EU um, has agreed to a training mission for Ukrainian soldiers, um, which is a a big step for for the EU as an organization to take on a security role in this conflict. And then we have, so this is the part of support for Ukraine, but then we have the other part, which is what is the EU doing for itself, for its own uh, security and to become more of a security actor. Um, there we have seen that most of the response has focused on NATO. So we have seen reinforcements by NATO members in the East, in the Baltic states. Um, but we also do see a debate within the European Union of the question, for instance, whether qualified majority voting should be changed on foreign security policy issues to make the EU um, yeah, a, a more efficient actor instead of waiting for the approval um, of everyone within the European Union. Then we have also Article 42.7 in the EU, which is basically supposed to be the Article 5 of the European Union. This will in the future also come up um, in discussions when at some point Ukraine will be a member of the European Union. Does the Article 42.7 also apply to Ukraine? Um, Yeah, I think that's just sort of a general uh, overview of the ideas that are discussed within the European Union. Great, thank you. Um, I know you just touched a bit on the mutual defense clause within the EU, but could you compare that to NATO Article 5 and just kind of describe those a little bit more? 
Yeah, so the idea is the same, that member states sort of stand up for each other in case of an attack, but it has obviously not the same kind of um, deterrence value as NATO's Article 5 has, first of all, because the US is not part of that, and the real military power in the transatlantic alliance is, of course, the United States, um, and because... Um, uh, the EU has no nuclear umbrella. So we have France as a member state, which has a nuclear umbrella. We had the UK, which is not a member anymore. Um, and But France's nuclear umbrella is solely under French command. Um, so there has been... There have been some statements in the past that France also feels responsible for the other EU member states, but that's far away from uh, a European uh, nuclear umbrella that would cover the West of Europe in the same way as the NATO nuclear umbrella, the US nuclear umbrella covers covers Europe. Great. So moving on to PESCO, it seems that the new permanent structured cooperation, or as previously mentioned, PESCO initiative is meant to increase the union's capacity to respond to acts of aggression by third states. So could you explain a little bit more about how this initiative works? and how this initiative was influenced, has influenced the ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine? Yeah, so the idea of PESCO really is to make it easier for EU member states to cooperate with, with, with each other in that field. But as so often with the European Union, it is the case that structures are put into place which are sort of more driven by the desire to have a structure for something than to come out with a real policy conclusion, sort of with a real policy impact. Um, so PESCO has been a project which was hailed as one of the major projects within the European Union to coordinate efforts of member states in the security and defense policies. But in reality, it has almost no impact on the war in Ukraine. Um, it is uh, certainly uh, a structure which will bring EU member states closer to, closer together, but it has not yet sort of an external role um, that it plays in, in the Ukraine war. Awesome. Um, do you think you could describe uh, a little bit more about the EU common security and defense policy and how it applies to the aforementioned conflict going on in Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, that, the EU common and, and the defense policy is really something which um, emerged over the years, which was not there at the founding of the European Union. The founding of the European Union was very much about, um, yeah, the deepening the economic uh, cooperation. Um, and so far, the EU common security and defense policy has focused on missions or goals that the EU pursued in its neighborhood primarily. Um, it was separate from the EU partnership policy, Eastern partnership policy, which was dedicated to bring Georgia, Ukraine, Moldova closer to the European Union. So those were two different parts of policies. Um, and there was... Uh, 
there was an intention before the outbreak of the war to add a security dimension to the Eastern Partnership policies to prevent that it becomes like two different silos, EU security defense policy on the one hand and Eastern Partnership policy on the other hand. But obviously, the outbreak of the war in, in, in Ukraine has changed that. Um, for the future, the greatest question for you, security and defense policy is certainly how it can work together with NATO. We had a very clear green light from Washington that Washington would welcome any European efforts um, to take on more responsibility for their own security, as is the favorite line. Um, uh, but the question is, does that take place within the NATO context or within the EU context? And how can one prevent that sort of these two frameworks um, do not fit together um, or ideally achieve that there are synergies between these two frameworks? Um, so the question is, now that a lot of European countries increase their defense budgets, including Germany with 2%, do these increases benefit a EU common security and defense policy, or do they benefit EU, the European pillar without NATO? And how can it make possible that, you know, those two structures uh, benefit each other? So you just touched upon NATO, and thank you so much for, like, describing that. That was really helpful. But could you talk a little bit more about the relationship between EU and NATO with respect to the Russia-Ukraine conflict and more specifically what the role of the U.S. plays now or what it should or could play in the future? Yeah, so basically the role of NATO really got strengthened throughout this war. I mean, it is the revival and the comeback of NATO that many have um, looked out for because NATO was sort of searching for a new mission um, after the end of the Cold War. We had out-of-area uh, missions of NATO. Um, and now NATO basically goes back to its founding mission um, to deter uh, Russian aggression. Um, so that puts NATO really in the spotlight of European security at the moment, which also explains why Ukraine wants to become a NATO member. Um, so after the, I mean, before the outbreak of the war, it had a neutral a neutral stance for a while, um, but now the topic is, is back on the agenda. Um, but I do think what is healthy is that the sort of rivalry that was there before and I mean, it was a very unequal rivalry because, of course, EU security and defense policy was not on the same level, not as developed as NATO security and defense uh, policy. Um, but that this rivalry um, is not, it's hopefully not there anymore. And that it has become clear that, you know, um, uh, it doesn't help in any way in the real world <laughs> if the EU and NATO stand in contrast to each other instead of complementing each other. So staying in the realm of military coalitions within the EU, we understand that the EU battle groups are various coalitions throughout the Union that are made up of military units. Do you think you could describe a little bit more of how the EU battle groups work? Where did they come about? How did they come about, excuse me? And how do they pertain to the current EU defense policy? Yeah, the EU battle groups were something that the EU was very proud of. And the idea was to um, make different countries work with each other, get accustomed to each other, get accustomed to common missions. Um, the problem with the battle groups is certainly that so far they have never been tested in real life. I mean, it's an idea and 
their sort of preparations for the battle groups, but um, uh, the real life test is still is still not there for the battle groups, um, and that is something which is obviously different to NATO. Uh, NATO capabilities, for instance, to NATO um, troops that are there now in Lithuania, um, a brigade that Germany has promised to Lithuania, um, which has actually sort of real life impact. But what it does is that it uh, it is an attempt to bring closer also the um, strategic cultures, the different strategic cultures in the European Union to see which countries have which um, advantages in uh, security and defense policy and to socialize, I mean, perhaps to some extent, to socialize Europeans towards at some point not a joint European army. This is not something that we will have in all likelihood, but to socialize them towards um, uh, towards joint military action. Do you see the potential use of battle groups um, in a scenario where Russian aggression towards Europe as a whole essentially proliferates? I think that's very much unlikely um, because the first call for battle groups, I mean, the first call would go out to NATO, it would not go out to EU battle groups in the crisis situation, just because NATO has so much more deterrent value than the European Union, um, where NATO, where EU battle groups at some point um, could come into play is certainly if in any future scenario one could imagine um NATO is not, uh, or the United States is not committed to NATO anymore in the same way that it was in the past. Um, then one would think about, one would have to think about what other structures could either replace that or sort of could come in instead. And there's certainly the EU battle groups will play a role, but that's a very hypothetical scenario, which, I mean, looking at the outcome of the midterms and the presidential elections in 2024 might at some point not be hypothetical anymore, but it still is at the moment very um, hypothetical. Thank you. Um, so could you elaborate a little bit more on why there's a need for closer cooperation on security and defense in the EU? Yeah, that's a very good question because one could also say, well, why doesn't the EU stick to its guns, which are economic guns. Why does it have to do all that if we have NATO? Um, and I think it's it is sort of it's part of this idea that the EU becomes an ever closer union the further it develops and that an ever closer union um, should also cooperate on political and security issues. Um, there is a strong willingness, especially from France, that Europe uh, becomes its own geopolitical actor in the world. So what Macron tried to push is um, Europe's uh, strategic autonomy, um, which is very ambitious because it will take decades if Europe invests a lot in its defense spending to get to the level that Europe could become an actor which is as taken as serious as NATO is. Um, but that is certainly sort of sort of an ambition that Europe should be geopolitical, that Europe should have its own security policy. Um, what is disappointing a little bit with the war in Ukraine is that um, the frontline states, Poland and the Baltic states, place much more trust in the United States and the defense by the United States than they do in France and Germany, because they feel that the commitment that France and Germany have made in this war for Ukraine 
are not sufficient to reassure them that in point of crisis, in a situation of crisis, one can count on France and Germany. Um, and that's a bigger problem because sort of at the bottom of all these EU security and defense initiatives is basically the trust that EU countries would come to the defense of each other, um, not only within the NATO context, but also within the EU context. And I think that trust is not there yet in the same way as there's trust into the United States and the wall of the United States. Thank you. Um, and so how integral um, do you think a common operational unit like an EU common army would be in this scenario? Yeah, I think an EU common army was always a, it's always, it has a little bit of a dream character because it is, um, it's sort of related to this idea that at some point the EU will not only be a union of member states, but will become a, a state in the same way as the United States is. So the United States of Europe with a united army. Um, that's a nice idea. But there again, the question of decision making is really crucial. So who decides and who commands a European army? And how can EU member states agree on one command and one European army if they basically still retain the sovereignty over their own troops. It becomes especially complicated with Germany because in Germany, um, the German parliament has the right or has the duty to agree or not agree to every mission that um, the Bundeswehr does. So it's not even something that the government can agree upon. They need the support by the parliament, which again, if one thinks in terms of a European army, becomes very complicated if the EU wants to send its army somewhere and has to wait for confirmation from the German parliament, if it is allowed to do that. Um, so for European army, all kinds of sovereignty questions come in. So I think it's realistic to have a more modest approach to at some point use the EU battle groups actually to try them, you know, in in in, in missions to see if if that concept works in real life. Um, and thereby to step by step integrate EU forces instead of dreaming of a European army which can lead to quite serious disagreements within the EU. Thank you so much. Um, and so what part of EU member states' strategic autonomy do you think um, should be operational and could cohesion happen in all ways short of operations? Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, I think the greatest challenge really is in EU strategic autonomy is really the nuclear question. I mean, it's. I mean, there's the conventional part of it, but the nuclear part is just huge, especially after the war in Ukraine and the nuclear threats that we see from Russia. Um, uh, and I think there, sort of, the greatest work would have to be done. Um, and surprisingly, after the war in Ukraine, we have not yet seen any initiatives, let's say, by the UK and France to get together and to send signals that. They consider the nuclear umbrellas to also cover other European countries, because in a way it's um, it's good for out of area missions and so on to have conventional forces which are integrated. But when it when we see what Russia is doing at the moment, the way how it is transforming nuclear deterrence into an act of um, aggression and basically using nuclear weapons to coerce other countries. Um, uh, that's something which one can only respond to with 
with a nuclear umbrella and with an own uh, nuclear shield over Europe. And that's something which I unfortunately do not see, which makes the whole idea of European strategic autonomy at some point questionable, in addition to the fact that it just will take a really long time to have the same level um, uh, as the United States has. Great. Thank you so much for answering that. That was really helpful. We kind of want to move into like a big picture question. So what yes. do you see as the future of EU defense policy, specifically after the Russia and Ukraine conflict comes to an end? Um, are there any initiatives in progress right now to address conflicts with similar potential as the ongoing one in Ukraine? So what we've seen is um, a few initiatives, um, which is, for instance, the um, uh, the European Shield initiative, which were put forward by Germany. But again, that's not necessarily something that was put forward in the EU context only. Um, it's the it's um, uh, more project in within the NATO context, but it does help to bring air defense systems of European countries. Uh, Yep, to coordinate better the air defense systems of European countries. Um, what I think is a big step is the EU training mission for Ukraine. Um, if that can be scaled uh, to a greater level at some point, um, and uh, if the EU is able to provide more funds to send weapons to Ukraine, those would be big steps at the at the immediate moment. Um, in the future, it is. Uh, the most important part of that, and it's good to see that those leaders that are now in charge, which are Ursula von der Leyen on the EU side and um, uh, Stoltenberg on the NATO side, that they have a very close cooperation and sort of this idea of rivalry is gone that we had in the past. But that's really something where um, in the strategic compass of the EU, but then the new NATO strategic compass, which at some point will always pose the question of um, of the Ds of don't we double uh, the structures here? Um, yeah, that's perhaps the bigger the bigger picture question. Great. Um, so you mentioned uh, the EU training mission for Ukraine. Uh, does this initiative involve being conducted together with the cooperation of EU member states with Ukraine? Um, or is it more of a, a unified collective approach that includes uh, the unions uh, basically uh, wherewithal? Yeah, I think if I'm not mistaken, it is. Um, uh, it has been agreed by the Foreign Affairs Council of the European Union. Um, so it is something which is... Um, yeah, which is um, a uh, agreed by member states, but which also includes EU institutions that are involved in setting the the military assistance up and setting the military assistance mission up, and it will be part um, and funded um, under the European Peace Facility. Um, so we do see this. Um, typical mixture uh, that we often see uh, within the EU policy. Member states, you know, giving uh, financial support, giving funds for the European Union to allow setting up a mission um, uh, which is coordinated by the institutional structures of the European Union. And we'll have to see how, how well that works out. 
We want to extend our gratitude to Dr. Liana Fix for taking the time to meet with us. We really appreciate her clear and thorough answers to our questions. We hope that this interview provides a preliminary understanding of EU defense and security policy with specific consideration for current events, including Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Stay tuned for part two of this series, which offers a more in-depth analysis by Dr. Jolien Howarth.